guys, welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path here in Asia. Before I get started today, I'd just like to let you guys know that I do have a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you are feeling unfulfilled and not so happy at your corporate job, and you're looking for a job that's a bit more fulfilling and exciting, then send me a message on Instagram at ongjennifer or via LinkedIn. I'd love to see how I can help. All right, let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Based on what you guys gave me as feedback, you guys wanted to see me bring in a couple more guests who maybe didn't quite quit their corporate job just yet, but were able to balance a full-time job with a side hustle that brings them passion and fulfillment. So today, I'm super excited to have Amanda Chong here with us. Amanda is a lawyer trained in Cambridge and Harvard, and while she spends her day job fighting against sex crimes and human trafficking, she is also a published poet on the side and a co-founder of the nonprofit organization Readable. So how did Amanda get started with her side hustles, and how does she balance all of these things at the same time? Well, I'll hand over to Amanda now to share her story. Welcome, Amanda. Super happy to have you here on the Control Alt Career podcast today. I'm really excited to you know, dive deep into your journey as a lawyer with quite a few different side hustles going on. I kind of want to rewind the tape a little bit all the way to the beginning. How did you decide to go to university in the UK? And specifically, why did you decide to study law? I was always very passionate about language and, and those were my best subjects in school. So I definitely knew that I wanted to study something in the arts. I think I also had an instinct that I wanted to work in the public interest and I wanted to help people. And I always had this instinct as a child. In fact, my very first ambition as a 10-year-old was to be a pediatric oncologist. But then I realized that when I went to secondary school, I wasn't even capable of lighting a Bunsen burner. I was afraid of lighting (laughs) Bunsen burners. So there went my career in science. And instead, I found a great joy in in reading literature and understanding the world through the lens of the arts and the humanities. Uh, And so I decided that I would either want to study law or literature in the U.S., I think it's a very conventional path for Singaporeans that when you want to study overseas, you would apply for government scholarships because these are seen as the best ways really to get funding, especially when your family is not able to fund you to study overseas. And so I was left with the decision as to whether I should study law or literature. I had very noble ideas about law. I saw it as the practical language in which the ideals of society are realized. So I really wanted to be at the forefront of that. And I guess for literature, I thought that this is something that I can always pursue in my own time. So I would rather spend my year studying law and leave literature for me to pick up on my own time. As to whether that worked out, I am not necessarily sure. There are definitely moments where I regret not pursuing uh, a degree in literature. Definitely when I was starting out my writing career in Singapore and a lot of the young writers, they all come from some sort of either literature background where they studied English or they studied creative writing. And so I felt that I didn't have that same kind of breadth of reading that they did or the right language to analyze or engage in the same level of literary criticism. And It's actually something that I've had to pick up on my own over the years, but it helps that I really do enjoy reading books about poetry and literary criticism. That's honestly amazing. At that point in time, were you thinking like, hey, maybe it would be more practical for me to have a law degree? Was that something that crossed your mind? Absolutely. I come from a family of lawyers. My dad was actually a dean at the NUS Law School, so I grew up in the law school, surrounded by students who would be in my living room talking to my dad about law. So I actually had a huge resistance to studying law, simply because, you know, you always try to defy what's the most natural path. But when it came down to it, I realized it was the most practical route. I think in Singapore, there is also this pattern of people who are very interested in the arts, 
going into law as kind of like a safety type of degree because yes. it's like what if everything that you try to do in the arts whether that's in the theater space or the literary space all of those things don't necessarily lead up to a stable income whereas with a law degree and that law training you are guaranteed to be able to find a job and i must say that i'm pretty grateful that i am a lawyer because even when it comes to my literary exploits it helps me to read contracts and to understand intellectual property rights and even advise some of my other fellow arts practitioners on what to look out for i think that, that that's really great were your parents supportive of you no matter which path you would have picked or do you think that they kind of were like hey amanda you know maybe you can save the literary part for something you do on the side well my parents were very open to me studying anything that i wanted because i had already taken the practical step of going on a government scholarship when you go on a government scholarship you are guaranteed 6 years of work in the government and so that's a job that you would have and i would never be left with that problem of studying an english degree and not having a job after that the classic like liberal arts degree problem that everyone talks about but my parents said that if i didn't get the government scholarship they would be willing to pay for a law degree because they saw that as an investment but i think they would have been more hesitant to pay for an english degree simply because I suppose the return on their investment isn't quite guaranteed. And I think that that's a very common thing that does happen to a lot of creatives as you said, especially in Asia with a more traditional mindset. A lot of people here are very nervous to major in something that's a bit more liberal arts or creative because they're like, how can I make money? So I think it's, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting that you also was one of the people who kind of faced that and picked the traditional route and it seems like you're really loving the traditional route as well. But we'll go into that. So you went to Cambridge and got your law degree and then you decided to get a masters of law in Harvard so you decided to go to the US as well kind of wondering what the train of thought was the very interesting thing about all the questions that you're asking me is that a lot of my decisions were structured by the scholarship that I was on so structured by circumstance rather than any kind of real autonomy the scheme that I was on allowed us to study for 3 years at an undergrad level followed by 1 year of masters which was optional but we would be bonded for the exact same period of 6 years So it's a no-brainer then that you would just decide to do a master's degree immediately after your undergrad. And after spending three years in Cambridge and being exposed to the UK style of examinations, which was frankly tremendously stressful, because it entailed, you know, just one big exam at the end of the year. So there's no cumulative coursework, and there was no open book. Everything uh, was committed to memory, and it's an absolute nightmare trying to memorize all these case names and statutes. I decided <laughs> that I wanted to experience something entirely different and so I applied for law school in the US and I ended up in Harvard specializing in international human rights and it was such a wonderful experience because when I was in the US I felt a real sense of possibility of the different things that I could do with my life much more so than when I was at Cambridge I think the reason for me feeling this greater sense of autonomy when I was studying in the US is because law is a graduate degree there and very often people who study law come from other backgrounds my thesis supervisor she had previously been a literature professor and she had a phd in literature before she ended up being a law professor at Harvard and another one of my thesis writing supervisors she was an anthropologist and these are just the varied backgrounds of the faculty amongst the students as well there were lots of people who had previous lives before they entered the law and i think that really opened me up to the possibilities of doing something else alongside the law and how that could actually add to your practice as a lawyer and enrich your thinking about the law do you feel like that was kind of the period in your life where you recognized that hey i don't need to just be a lawyer i could be a multi hyphenate i could be a lawyer and have something else on the side or i can be a lawyer and also still be able to pursue my literary dreams for example yeah definitely because i saw the potential in being able to explore both of these things to a fairly high degree you know it wasn't really uh, a zero sum game you don't have to just invest all your life on one particular path but you could actually carve your own path i had friends who also set up their own non-profits and i think 
it just put me in a frame of thinking of my life beyond the boundaries of just one single profession and to think about what my values are and how I would want these values to be made manifest in the many things that I do across my one life. That's so interesting that such a different education system has brought about such a change in mindset for you as well. You were bonded by the government, so it made sense that you had to come back to Singapore to serve. Did you know what role you were going to be placed into or did you have some decision making around that? Well, I think it was very fortunate for me that everything lined up in terms of my job. I personally had no interest in practicing corporate law. For me, my interest in law was very much wedded to public interest. So I always wanted to work uh, in a public interest job. So as it turned out, working for the government was perfect for me. And usually when you join the Singapore Legal Service, you get placed in the criminal justice division or the civil division. And for me, I was very interested in gender justice. And in fact, that was what I had specialized in Harvard. I did all sorts of courses like the evolution of gender crimes. And I studied under renowned like feminist legal theorists, uh, including Catherine McKinnon. And I was really blessed to be able to immediately work in an area that's related to that field. So I had the opportunity to work as a sex crimes prosecutor, which was my first posting. And I was in it for five and a half years. Uh, I also worked on the legislation to do with trafficking in persons in Singapore and had the chance to prosecute the first labor trafficking and the first sex trafficking case in Singapore. And this was actually my thesis in Cambridge. So it's truly a dream come true for me to have had those opportunities. I'm someone who really operates on a sense of purpose and everything that I do, I have to feel that really strong sense of purpose. And I have always uh, felt very strongly about equal rights for all genders. And I've always felt very strongly about how we treat the marginalized in our society, which includes immigrants, includes people who are trafficked into our country. And so during law school, I I was pursuing my interest in these areas. The privilege of having a government scholarship is that your job is already decided for you. So you can spend your summers doing things that you actually want to do rather than trying to get internships with like big law firms. So I ended up working in a shelter for migrant domestic workers under the Humanitarian Organization for Migration Economics Home, which is a nonprofit in Singapore that works with migrant workers. So working in the women's shelter there really opened my eyes to the specific challenges that migrant women in Singapore encountered. And I really wanted to focus my study of law to help this population and to see what could be done. By the time I returned to start working in the government. That was when there was real political will and Singapore did sign on to the UN Trafficking and Persons Protocol and did develop um, our own legislation to protect against trafficking in persons. It's called like the Prevention of Trafficking, the Prevention of Human Trafficking Act. Because I already studied these subjects in the course of my undergrad and my master's, I asked my boss for the opportunity and I told him that this is what I've done. I have also worked with the UN special advisor who advised on this trafficking in persons protocol as part of my co-curricular activities in Cambridge University. So it was one of those moments where everything lines up. And then I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity and my boss assigned me to work on these cases because of the expertise that I did gain through my studies. I think that's honestly so amazing that you managed to land your dream job just like right off the bat. I wanted to ask you, how did you kind of get yourself there? Was it just knowing very clearly what you were passionate about very early on in your schooling? And so you had time to focus your time and effort in school to build up your quote unquote portfolio of expertise in that space. And I guess any advice for people who are thinking about how to get themselves positioned into their dream career? I think you summarized it perfectly. It starts out from a very keen interest. And I think we all have our pet topics and areas that we feel very passionate about. And there really is no replacement for that sense of passion that you feel towards a particular area. I think other people who hear you speaking about it can also sense it. And when you allow that passion to drive you and you take practical steps to go deeper into it, which means 
spending that time getting educated on this subject area, doing your own research, getting all of these things under your belt would position you for any future opportunities to come because we can't really control necessarily what opportunities are coming our way, but we can pursue our interests to the utmost such that when they come, we are best positioned to take up these opportunities. Do you have any advice for people who just don't really feel so strongly about any particular topic? How could they go about figuring out what that North Star is for them? I think maybe it starts out with exposing yourself to a wide variety of areas and to see like what clicks for you. That can be done through internships, through reading widely, through listening to different podcasts about specific areas. You know, I've been interested in trafficking in persons ever since I was 13 years old and someone came to my classroom to speak about it. The president of UNIFEM, as it was called at that time, which is the UN Women's Organization, came to my classroom to speak about how Singaporean men were going to Batam and Bintan to have sex with underage girls. So this woman, Melissa Kui, she's a very prominent social activist, but the conviction in which she spoke about it was incredibly inspiring to me. And it got me so interested in this topic because I have been inspired by other people. I always had this idea from a very young age of what I was interested in. Mm. So perhaps my advice then is to expose yourself to all sorts of people and, and see what clicks because there's nothing new under the sun. And there are all sorts of cool people in this world who are exploring different areas. And sometimes when you hear someone speak about a topic, it really engages you and makes you want to find out more. That kind of leads me to the next question, which is aside from law, you also have interests in literature, which you mentioned earlier. Was this just something that was always like innate in you as well? You mentioned that you loved reading as a child. Maybe speak a little bit more about your love for literature. I really enjoyed reading because it provided an escape. And I really enjoy writing because to me, as a child, it took me out of that paradigm of just pursuing knowledge for the sake of grades. I think in an Asian education system, we often feel very judged by every single thing that we do and that every single thing that we do has to lead up to an A grade. But I felt that when I was writing creatively, I had that freedom to do whatever I liked. And it was not really possible to judge it by a super academic lens. And it was a space for me to make mistakes. It was a space for me to experiment. Now I write because I feel that it helps me to process my own emotions. I, I am the kind of person who has a lot of feelings about everything. And a very cathartic way for me to process my own feelings is through writing. So it is my way of self-care. <laughs> I think you could say that. But I also really enjoy the power of literature in the sense that it connects us to something more transcendent and outside of ourselves. Because the temptation in this modern world is to kind of just see ourselves in a very narrow, almost solipsistic way where we have our own lives, we're pursuing our own pursuits. But literature helps us to zoom out and connects us to this fabric of humanity that existed before us and that will exist after us. So I enjoy plugging into that moment of transcendence through reading and writing. Well, that's so nice. I mean, I can totally see where the writer side of you comes from. And then I think that's such an interesting balance as well, right? Because law is probably, I mean, from the outside at least, maybe less creative, I would say, maybe just more to the point. Whereas in the creative space, you're much more free and almost like the left and the right side of your brain are both being used. So I think it's fascinating that you have these two sides for yourself and you've been able to balance both of these. It sounds to me like you've always been a writer growing up. You write a lot of poems as well. And actually one of your poems is now engraved on the Helix Bridge in Singapore, which is amazing. How did that come about? All of this started out from, again, when I was in secondary school. In secondary school, I really got into writing both poetry as well as for theatre. And I was encouraged a lot by my teachers and they submitted my work to various international writing competitions. I, I won the Commonwealth Essay Competition, which is a essay competition for all countries across the Commonwealth. And I won the British Poetry Society Foil Young Poets of the Year, which again is a worldwide competition. So all of these opportunities, I think, really set me on the path of being a writer. And actually, when I was studying law for those four years in the UK and the US, I didn't write very much at all because I was so focused on the law. 
And I felt that all my brain power had to be devoted to understanding laws and discipline and exploring the areas I was passionate about in the areas of gender justice. So it was really only when I came back to Singapore to start work as a lawyer that I had this ache again to write. I think it originated from being four years overseas and having all that room to explore to returning back to Singapore and feeling a little bit more acutely the constraints. I remember looking at the Singapore River and just thinking like, this is such a small river. Is this even a river? Is this not a drain? <laughs> I mean, no disrespect to Singapore. I love Singapore. But it was just that sense of your world narrowing that I think is prone to putting any 20-something into a mild existentialist crisis. <laughs> so anyway, it was writing that helped me process all of that. That's why I think there's something more significant than just me being a lawyer in Singapore. I want to be connected to the world, to something transcendent. And, and therefore, uh, I started pursuing writing again. So the poem on the Marina Bay Helix Bridge, that was actually a poem that I wrote when I was 16 years old. As I said, I won a couple of competitions. I was invited to submit something and I was mentored by the poet, Singapore's unofficial poet laureate, as he's called, Professor Edwin Thambu. So all of that was based on something that I had done when I was much younger. And in fact, that particular poem, which is called Lion Heart, was also included in the Cambridge International GCSE curriculum. So even now I get random DMs and emails from, you know, kids in like Argentina or Canada who are studying that poem and they want my homework help on it. It's quite funny actually. (laughs) But to kind of restart my writing career when I moved back to Singapore as a 20-something, that definitely was a much more intentional process and different from all the writing that I did as a teenager. So that really entailed me putting myself out there and seeking opportunities to explore writing as, as a career. Yeah, maybe tell us a bit more about that writing scene in Singapore because you don't hear about it as much. What does that writing scene kind of look like in Singapore? It's probably something that people don't expect of Singapore, but Singaporeans read a lot of poetry. And a testament to that is like the sales of books. But routinely in the US, if you're a poet, right, you would publish maybe 800 books as part of your print run. And and those are like 800 books for the whole North American market. But in Singapore, publishers routinely publish a thousand copies of poetry and they get sold out within Singapore. And in fact, there are multiple print runs of a thousand when it comes to Singapore poetry. So if you kind of measure it on a per capita, like how many Singaporeans are reading poetry compared to in the U.S., it actually is a proportionately huge amount, right? We remain a niche, but it's quite an active niche in Singapore. So my poetry book, which I published in 2016, it's on to its second print run. There are other poets who have published, you know, five or six print runs. So you can imagine 6,000 copies of their book in the hands of Singaporeans. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really unexpected, right? If you think about it, because everyone assumes that Singaporeans are all, you know, very practical people, kind of embedded in this very STEM world of like calculations and, you know, prizing your classic Asian skills. (laughs) But no, we read a lot of poetry. And I think a reason behind that probably is because everyone has a need to feel connected and Singapore writers, Singapore poets allow us that opportunity to feel connected to something much larger than ourselves and much larger to this kind of cookie cutter society that we find ourselves in. What I really enjoy is that, especially in the preceding years, poets coming from very different profiles, including migrant worker poets. So you have collections written by uh, migrant construction workers, migrant domestic workers. And before COVID, right, there was a very vibrant poetry scene where routinely there'll be many events, uh, spoken word, readings, people combining poetry and music. So that was a side of Singapore that I really enjoyed. And I think connected me more to what I had experienced outside of Singapore in, in my time in the US and the UK. And I just enjoyed that kind of openness of discussion, that openness to community and to hearing 
other voices beyond those who traditionally have power. That's so interesting. And honestly, something I never knew about Singapore. So I think it's so cool to learn about that. How did you tap back into this space? You mentioned it was a very deliberate decision to pick up writing again and tap into this community again. How did you go about getting into this community, coming back from your studies abroad? I think what really helped me was to see what programs are available. So I went on the National Arts Council website and I found that at that point of time, they had a mentorship program for people who are interested in writing. So I was paired up with uh, Cyril Wong, who is one of Singapore's most renowned confessional poets. And I really admire his work. And I always have since secondary school. Having that opportunity to be mentored by him also led to, to me meeting more people in the literature scene. And I think a fantastic way to get into writing is through Singapore Poetry Writing Month or Sing Po Re Mo. That's a Facebook group every April and there are challenges across the entire month to write a poem a day. So I participated in that in 2015 and I ended up getting to know Joshua Ip, who is a Singapore Literature Prize winning poet. And he convened several poets from that Facebook group into a writing workshop. And till today, we still write together and workshop our work together. But I think it was really, again, realizing that I have an interest and taking very intentional steps to sort of survey the landscape to see what are ways I can build my skills and ways that I can get to know people already in that scene. And then after that, you know, your usual friendships take over, right? Because once you get to know these people, you get in community with them. And, and I think you learn a lot from each other and then eventually you are part of an ecosystem. And how do you balance this with your day job? How do you oh. split the time between writing and being creative with the, the stresses of also being a lawyer? Well, the thing is that I, I do write very slowly. And as I said, I published my book in 2016 along with several of my writer friends. By now, all of them have another book out or coming out this year. I haven't gotten there yet myself because I write incredibly slowly. And I think one great thing about writing for me is that it takes me out of that space of measuring my productivity in a KPI-centric way. We're so used to producing and producing and producing in our day jobs, right? In this capitalist society. Whereas for me, writing has always been, I need a lot of blank space in my day and I need a lot of time to think and absorb different types of experiences, whether that's in my personal life or whether that's engaging with other people's art. This poet, a Christian Wyman, who describes this as indolent discipline, as in like a lazy kind of discipline. I interpret it as being disciplined to have rest or disciplined to let your mind wander. Because very often we are so busy trying to fill up all the blank spaces of our day, trying to be productive with all the various things that we do in our lives that we don't let ourselves just blank out. But in order for me to write anything, I need a lot of time blanking out. And I need a lot of time just reading what I want to read and not because anyone has dictated that to me so that you have that space to process the world and then produce poetry. <laughs> so that's why it takes me so long. <laughs> At the same time, it's a great relief from my churn of deadlines and my lawyer day job. What has worked for me in the past is to take days off my work. So when I know that, that I have a writing deadline, for example, I have to produce a poem by X date or I have to write a play by X date, I will take leave off my job so I have the entire day to do whatever I want. And half of that may be spent reading other things or listening to podcasts or listening to lectures. And then when my body feels ripe, then I'll start writing. <laughs> so it really looks like I'm procrastinating half the time when I'm writing, but I just embrace it as part of the process because it takes a long time for my brain to switch gears out of this like very linear lawyer mode into that creative space because when you're creative writing, you don't really necessarily know what you're going to come up with. That's in contrast to any other type of writing that we do in our jobs. And I need a runway of time for my brain to switch gears into that creative space. And therefore, I have to just take days off work. So I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know that I do have a one-on-one -on -one career coaching program designed to help you guys go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing your dream career. 
So if you do also want to be like Amanda and be able to balance both a job you love and a side hustle that brings you fulfillment, well then send me a message or you can follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore. That's O-N-G-J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R underscore for more information. I've also linked my Instagram profile in the show notes today's episode as well. All right, now back to the episode. You mentioned a bit about deadlines. Are you making money from writing on the side? Are you getting commissioned work, for example? Sometimes I get commissions for specific poems, whether that's another artist uh, who wants me to write like a poem in response to his or her work. I also receive commissions from arts organizations. So my most recent commission was from the Espany and that was to write a play about feelings and it turned into a musical and it was so much fun for me to even be on that process. I didn't anticipate writing a play, although I love drama and always have ever since I was a child again. And I, I really had the opportunity to work with the best composer and director that I had admired from afar. So it's the composer Julian Wong, the director Edith Podesta, and to have my first professional play stage in the Esplanade Theatre. That was amazing. But it also took me about a week off work to write that play. <laughs> and, and how did you land that? Because honestly, that's amazing to be able to get that sort of opportunity. Well, I have a website and I am very blessed <laughs> that very interesting people contact me on my website. I mean, you're one of them. <laughs> I think having a website is a good idea with any sort of creative and to have that website tell a little bit of a story about what you do. And I think it was also the producer on this had a lot of faith in me, a surprising amount of faith. I, I thank her for that. And she was really looking for a writer, a poet specifically, who could work with children because she wanted this play to be devised with children because we wanted to come up with a work that would give both children and adults that language to explore their feelings. So the children piece came in because she knows that I run a nonprofit for kids and I already work with kids and I have some track record for doing it. So I think it's one of those moments when all the passions that you have line up and an amazing opportunity lands in your lap. I think that is so cool. It's amazing how these things all connected in your life in such serendipitous ways, right? I actually also wanted to ask you a bit about personal branding as well, because maybe that's also one thing that has kind of led you to the success that you've seen today. People always talk about personal branding as like something that is important. You mentioned that you have a website. Was that something that you thought about in terms of building up a personal brand or it was very organic and natural? Any advice on this front? I think it was very organic for me. I never really set out to create any kind of personal brand. The reason why I have a website is because when I published my book, I wanted a way for people to find me easily and for me to connect with my readers because that's the most important thing to me being a writer is that I want to be connected to the people who find that my work resonates. When I had more bandwidth, I would write reflections on Facebook about things that I experienced. That's just a very natural thing for me to do. And I had a couple of these Facebook posts go viral. The very first one was about me meeting this wonderful taxi driver called Uncle Go, who taught himself how to read. He didn't finish primary school, but he taught himself how to read in a library. And this kind of went viral. And it was actually how my beautiful co-founder, Jonathan Mark, found me. It's because he saw like, wow, this woman is so passionate about your know, social inequality and literacy. I think she would be interested in working with me on a project to do with literacy in a low-income neighborhood. And it eventually led up to readable starting. I think from these Facebook posts that went viral, people kind of remembered me or read my writing. And then that more organically led the development of a personal brand. If you're passionate about something, right, you need to put your name out there so that people know who to approach as a go-to person when they're doing projects or exciting things. I think that's important. That's a way of furthering your passion. I think that's amazing advice, right? Because you could have very easily kept these thoughts in a journal or something very private and not shared it with the world. But because you took that first step to put yourself out there, opportunities kind of just slowly started coming in over time. So I wanted to get to Readable as well, because you alluded to it. And I think it's so cool that that's how you got looped into Readable and how you met your two co-founders on this. Maybe tell us about the early days of Readable. I know you guys have been around for quite a few years already, but you know, in the early days, what was 
is the mission? How did you guys come about creating this? So Readable, when we first started, we had no ambitions to create a non-profit. I mean, now Readable is a charity, but we really had no ambitions to do anything organizational. It started out from Jonathan, my co-founder. So his church at that time did a food distribution program around the Jalan Kuko neighborhood, which is a very underserved neighborhood that is also smack in the middle of the city, right opposite Robertson Key. So he noticed that there were a lot of children who were not reading at age level by the time they went to primary school. And this was out of no fault of their own. Mainly it was because their fathers were incarcerated or otherwise preoccupied putting food on the table. And their mothers were very often migrant moms who did not speak English as a first language. And so they didn't have that kind of exposure to literacy that a lot of middle-class kids take for granted. And it translated to their first experience of school being one of failure. That already sets you back when you associate going to school with feeling like a failure. It has knock-on impacts on your success levels in school and eventually any prospect of you being able to break the cycle of poverty. And so we decided that we wanted to just show up every week in the flat of a friend that we made in a neighborhood who was a migrant mom. And she started to invite other children, apart from her own, to our classes. And so we were really just three lawyers, not much of a background on how to teach kids reading, feeling our own way, but committed to showing up every week. And again, I think when you are very passionate about something, you attract like-minded people. And in our case, we definitely did attract like-minded people who are more skilled than us in this specific area. So it included people who are trained in education, in pedagogy, and they helped us to professionalize our program and our curriculum. And Readable eventually grew too big to be housed in a flat. So we partnered a lot with the migrant mothers in the community to open their homes as classrooms. And we started partnering with other community organizations to use their space as classrooms within the neighborhood. So it really was just a gradual evolution with us responding to the needs on the ground and partnering very actively with community. That's so fascinating because it sounds like it was just like three people wanted to do something good and you guys did it and then slowly got some traction. And then you're like, okay, maybe we should move into a bigger space, bring in more people, set up a nonprofit so that we're like a proper organization. It seems yeah. like it was very organic as well. Did you guys know how to set up a nonprofit or by that time you had more professionals involved uh, who had no. that experience? Expertise. No, <laughs> we're just a bunch of lawyers. Now our core team is bigger than that. And it includes people in the teaching profession, people in tech, but generally young professionals, right? So we are all feeling our way around. We recently are hiring a full-time staff. So this is the first time after almost eight years of running this organization that we're finally getting someone to come on board as a professional to oversee the organization and to coordinate its different function. And that became necessary because we were growing too big. The number of kids that we serve was just increasing. So we wanted to hire someone. Yeah, we're just a bunch of professionals who are trying to apply our best professional skills in the context of giving back to the community. We are very serious about volunteer training and volunteer empowerment and making sure that our volunteers are equipped with the necessary skills to deliver curriculum and also to understand the very specific context of these kids growing up in poverty. How did you figure out how to teach them and what type of teaching would be the most effective for them? So again, relied a lot on the actual educational professionals to direct us on this. And we have been incredibly blessed because a lot of wonderful people have advised us along the way. For example, when we wanted to expand into running a preschool class, the lady who runs the training for Eaton House Preschool Teachers, which is a very prestigious preschool program in Singapore, came to train us on how to adopt these principles for our own classroom. And at the stage that we were contemplating running a class for migrant mothers to learn English, uh, a woman who is already a trained ESL teacher and develops curriculums around Southeast Asia for ESL students, she came on board and she led that program. So it's really tapping onto the people who come to us. And I think probably it goes back to your point about how 
when your passion is there, you kind of attract the right people or somehow it kind of pulls in these people who feel that sort of passion and want to offer their help as well. So I think that that's so interesting. So I want to lead on kind of like to the last portion of the interview, which is on things on the personal front. One of the questions that I would love to know is how do you avoid burnout? It seems like there's quite a lot of hats that you are wearing at the same time. And they all seem like pretty intense kind of hats that you wear. How do you balance all of them and and stay sane, I guess? (laughs) This is such a good question because honestly, I'm still figuring it out myself. I feel that in this COVID period where our days are kind of monotonous, burning out is actually a very real thing that all of us feel. Everything is very samey and nothing really gives you a great sense of excitement anymore. I think what has helped me is to really have time away from the three things that I work on, right? Lawyer, writing, nonprofit work. I try not to touch my law work if I can help it on weekends because my weekends are devoted to writing and my nonprofit work. I think that has been helpful for me. I honestly think that one thing that I need to be better at is to take days off where I do absolutely nothing. We're just so conditioned to being productive all the time that we always try to pack things in. I think to me, carving out times for rest and figuring out the things that really do bring you rest, whether that's a hobby or a spiritual practice, you know, all of those things are very necessary to the human soul. Even within your weekends, I'm curious to know, how do you split the time across like writing and also your nonprofit? Typically, every Saturday would be devoted to readable because that's when our classes are. And the nonprofit admin is something that is a slow burn throughout the week. And then for Sundays, I usually try to keep it free. So that's when like, I would attend church. I would catch up with friends. I would do my own reading and I will try to write. (laughs) You see, I'm such a mood-based person, actually. Like the thing that I feel like doing is so dependent on literally my mood that it's hard to catch me in a right time for writing. So sometimes I resent having the constraints of a regular Monday to Friday job because it does mean you have to show up for your job. And even if a sudden wave of inspiration strikes you, you still got to continue doing your nine to five. I mean, it's not even a nine to five. It's like a nine to nine. So for you, it's almost like creative spurts as well. Like the writing kind of comes yeah. like when the inspiration comes. It's not like I'm going to sit down like every, I don't know, Sunday and like write for five hours. It's more like fluid no, and kind no. of like when it strikes, you'll write. Yeah. But I think that I need to start adopting some sense of discipline into the writing as well, because I do want to publish by next year. I think like everything in life, you have to balance discipline and freedom. And I think it's kind of like writing a good poem. So when you write a good poem, you think a lot about tension and release, right? Moments of tension and moments of release. And that allows the poem to breathe. It allows that poem to capture the attention of the reader and for the reader to receive from that poem. And I think that's like a pretty good analogy for the way that we should treat our time, right? There needs to be moments of tension, and moments of release because that is how our minds and our souls need to breathe and it's what we need to really present our fullest selves to deal with the challenges. I really, really love that. And I feel like that's kind of how you've structured your life as well. Like you've got the more intense, like maybe lawyer side of yourself. And then you've got like maybe the more fluid, creative side, nonprofit side of yourself. So also kind of echoed in your own life. Did you ever consider pursuing some of these side hustles as your full-time job? Did you ever consider, hey, now that I'm no longer bonded by the government, maybe I can pursue writing as a full-time career? Yeah, I definitely have. But I think that There is a part of me which is very alpha in the sense that I have been conditioned my whole life to climb ladders, like educational ladder, the corporate ladder. And I actually realized that it's so deeply programmed into me that I actually get satisfaction from climbing the ladder from one rung to the next. So I have that level of self-awareness now (laughs) that this is something that's stopping me from leaving my lawyer job, which I do enjoy as well. But I think what scares me, to be completely honest, is that in the space of writing and nonprofit work, there isn't a discernible ladder to climb. That is what scares me about going into that because it's like, how do I measure my progress? How do I know if I'm living my best life when there are no clear markers that I can define? And so I truly admire people who leave the corporate world and strike out on their own in this ladderless world because I'm still in that space where I find comfort in climbing the ladder and joy from it, paradoxically, even though it does make me very stressed. 
<laughs> I think that's really great self-awareness and it comes to show how maybe a side hustle is kind of the best option for you right now, you know, so you have kind of the best of both worlds without having to put the financial pressure on yourself to maybe deliver from yeah. your side hustles. And also you have clear metrics of success from your main job. So I think that that's been yeah. really great for you to be able to balance both of these. And so just maybe two more questions for you. This question I asked all of my guests on the show, which is in the Western world, there's this idea that if you follow your passion, eventually the money will come. Whereas in Asia, uh, a lot of it is like, hey, focus on making money and being practical and kind of keep your passion as something on the side. So given that you've kind of spent time in both Asia and also the Western world, and you've kind of balanced both of these in different ways in your own life, I just wanted to hear what your thoughts are on this like money versus passion debate. I think if I followed my specific passions of writing poetry and nonprofit work, I'm not confident that it leads to the money coming, <laughs> but I'm not really motivated by money. And I say that with full awareness that it is privilege that allows me to say that because I've never been in a position of need and there's no need for me to worry about money. It's not a huge motivating factor in the way that I structure my life. I prefer to think about purpose and my values. But I would say that having a stable income from my primary job as a lawyer truly gives me the freedom to pursue my passions. Because if I were to you know, pursue writing full-time, as you pointed out, I would have to take projects that I didn't feel so strongly about to do things that didn't really come from my need to express myself artistically. Whereas now I really do have that benefit of being very selective in my projects and not doing anything that doesn't bring me joy, artistically speaking. So I think I'll be hesitant to lose that level of freedom. The last question for you as we close off, any you know parting words of advice for people who are thinking about writing on the side or you know having something creative on the side and kind of balancing that with their corporate job? For anyone who wants to create any kind of art, the first thing is to be an avid consumer of art across all disciplines because you need to know what's out there. I always see doing anything artistic as entering into a stream of dialogue that has been happening for centuries. You need to understand what that landscape is like in the past, what conversations you're entering into, what conversations people are having now, what concerns artists of our time. And so I spend a lot of time in galleries, watching a lot of plays, reading a lot of books. And I'm very interested in specifically artists in Singapore because I see myself as having that conversation with them. And I think all of these things will help you to develop a very keen sense of taste and develops your inner critic as well. That will stand you in very good stead when you produce your own art and then you have a sense of when needs to improve or whether it really does all that you intend for it to do. Would you recommend them to kind of try out something in the art space on the side while they have a full-time job? Or would you recommend them kind of quitting and, and jumping deep into that space? I am a Singaporean and therefore pragmatic. And that's where my <laughs> advice is going to come from. I think you should dabble first, just to be sure that it's something that you really are interested in. And you might reach a point in your dabbling where you feel like you really want to deepen your knowledge and interest in this. And I think there are other options apart from completely leaving your job, such as taking a couple of months out or taking your own personal leave to do courses or to do residencies with different arts organizations. And once you're really sure, then jump ship. And I have seen friends who have left their jobs to go into the arts and I have seen the joy that it has brought them. But also the challenges, especially now is a terrible time for the arts, especially the performing arts with COVID and many shows are being cancelled. There's just not enough work to go around. In fact, in this season, I see friends leaving the arts and going into corporate jobs, right? So I think it's great to keep your options open and to always have a realistic kind of view of the financial consequences of any particular decisions. But I must say that I too am filled with admiration for people who leave jobs to pursue their passions, which I guess is the whole premise of your podcast. <laughs> And on that note, I will wrap up today's interview. Thank you so much, Amanda, for talking to us today and sharing your journey and all the advice that you have for us. I think it's been so insightful for me to learn from you. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners probably feel the same way. So just wanted to say a big thank you for your time here with us today. Thank you, Jennifer. It was really fun having this chat with you. 
And there you have it, my conversation with Amanda. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, something Amanda realized after studying at Harvard is that you do not have to invest your entire life into one career path. We no longer live in a world where you do the same job for the rest of your life. So have the courage to carve your own career path, whether it is to switch careers completely or to be a multi-hyphenate like Amanda. Two, once you figure out what your passion is, focus on furthering your knowledge in it. Spend time learning and get as many opportunities as you can under your belt. Take action. Only by taking action will future opportunities come. And while we can't really control what opportunities are going to come our way, we can pursue our interests to the utmost, such that when they do arrive, we are best positioned to take on these opportunities. I've mentioned this so many times in my podcast before, but from my coaching program, I realized that the main thing that's stopping people from achieving their dream job is fear and this inability to take action because of the fear. So I do implore you to take action. Three, Amanda believes that we need to balance discipline and freedom. Yes, it is important to be disciplined and focus on building skills relating to your passion, but it is also crucial to set aside time for rest. This is especially important for those of you who are thinking about pursuing a creative side hustle. Our minds and souls need time to breathe in order to create creative work. Interestingly, this balance between discipline and freedom is also what a lot of my guests who are startup founders mentioned in my prior podcast episodes. Go check out season one, episode four on style theory for more on this topic. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control All Career. Check back in two weeks for the next episode where I'll be interviewing Renee Chow, who has a YouTube channel focused on beauty with over 600,000 subscribers. But what I find most fascinating about her story is she's actually not your stereotypical millennial or Gen Z. She has actually built a very long successful career as the general manager of Hermes China and has even started and sold her own brick and mortar store to Walgreens before she started her journey as a YouTuber. It's a super fascinating one that you definitely won't want to miss. So make sure you're subscribed to my podcast to get alerted. And if you liked today's episode, do share it with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate job and need a little extra inspiration. I also do have a one-on-one -on -one career coaching program, so if you aren't very happy with your job and you're looking to build a side hustle or switch careers like many of my guests on the podcast, then feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more information. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Music